This podcast is sponsored by Equiland, a global fintech firm for the securities finance industry. Welcome back to another episode of Asia Securities Finance Monthly. I'm your host, Matt MacArthur. And once again, we are here to hopefully shed some light on developing securities finance topics, especially from an APAC point of view. Coming up on this episode is Pazla's chairman, Jason Wells, after my job. Before we get underway with your 007 style interrogation of me, I think we need to take a moment to get to know Matt MacArthur a little bit better. I get a taste of what it's like to be a podcast guest. And we find out what Morgan Stanley's new Tran would do with a billion dollars, only on Asia Securities Finance Monthly. Now I admit, I'm walking on eggshells here as our next guest and I both work under the umbrella of securities finance, but we are in completely different divisions. So buckle up and let's take a deep dive into the world of financing, what exactly it is and how does it work. And here to help us unravel that mystery, we have with us John Timms from UBS here in Hong Kong. Welcome, John. Thanks for having me, Matt, and thanks for Pazla. Anytime. All right, let's get stuck in here like an Alabama tick. John, tell us a little bit about yourself and your background, and how did you end up on the financing desk? Yeah, thanks, Matt. Yeah, my name's John Timms. I look after the uh, financing and optimization solutions team here in APAC. We operate across three broad segments, so uh, client analytics, collateral trading, and financial resources. And I actually got started in 2005 with UBS in London as a collateral manager. I then worked in risk management for a period, and then I began in collateral trading in about 2017. And I've been in Hong Kong for the last 13 years and thoroughly enjoying it. Now, because this is a new segment for this podcast, one we've never spoken about before, can you outline fundamentally what financing is and how is the funding desk at UBS incorporated into the overall prime broker franchise? Sure. So yes, ultimately, when we talk about financing, we're ultimately providing financing to our end clients. And really the focus for us as a funding desk is to provide a very stable and robust source of financing throughout market cycles. So at UBS, for example, we like to talk about uh, having a balance sheet for all seasons. And that really is our overarching focus, being able to provide that financing for clients so they can actually focus on their investment strategies, on their hedging strategies, on their market strategies and facilitating what they need to do. You know, practically speaking, what that means is actually operating you know, a secured funding portfolio where we manage the sort of tenor and composition very carefully, but also focusing very carefully on mobilizing and optimizing our collateral pools you know, where we have a lot of scale. And in order to do that, we of course have to partner with our clients. We also need to partner with our counterparties and our vendors and our, and our broader sort of market-facing counterparts. Now, I'm going to come right through the front door on this one. What is the difference between APAC and other markets? I think, I think the main difference is the sort of heterogeneous market structure we have here. So, you know, having so many different markets with different nuances creates a lot of challenges. But, you know, show me a challenge, I'll show you an opportunity. I think one of the things that we've been uh, really good at is actually looking at those things that look difficult and finding ways to innovate and provide solutions ultimately then to create liquidity and funding to then you know, provide investment solutions and strategies to our own clients. So I think that's what's really exciting about the region. And there's just a vibrancy and growth, I think, in capital markets here that you know, I, I've worked in all three regions for UBS. And that's what's kept me here is, is that sort of vibrancy and that growth mentality. Now, let's break this down. What are the main types of assets being funded? Yeah, so you know, we, I work within the global markets business. And, and one interesting thing um, that we did at UBS was about four or five years ago, we really integrated our business into one global markets. 
And the thinking behind that was really to be a little bit more client-centric about how we thought, but also to actually uh, find opportunities and synergies between what historically pe people think about fixed income pools and equity pools, and much more thinking about collateral pools and optimizing our broader footprint. So, you know, that's very much been the direction of travel for us. So we definitely operate across a broad spectrum of cross assets. But equally, and, you know, as you said, Matt, you work in the industry, there are also practical considerations around settlement clearing, tri-party agents, market-facing dynamics. There also mean there are new, unique factors to the fixed income pools versus the FT pools. So I think, I think UBS is not alone in this, but we've definitely been at the forefront of trying to think more holistically. Now, I've always wondered this. Is financing mainly driven by upgrade trades or balance sheet or liquidity? The primary function here is to really provide that, that stable source of financing to the end clients. But obviously, overarching that, you also have you know, the, the capital and liquidity and funding frameworks that come from regulators. But also, you have the frameworks that come from you know, internal control and internal sort of management as well. And, and I think, again, I don't think UBS is alone in that, but often those internal measures are even more stringent and robust. So what you're really trying to do is you're trying to marry those things together, come together with a sensible uh, strategy, but also you are trying to optimize as well. And I think that's where this, this whole sort of funding optimization and collateral optimization field has become really exciting is that people have realized that there's a lot of operating efficiency you can gain. And that if you get it right, you can actually take create operating scale for your broader markets franchise. So yes, we're of course very focused on the regulations. And yes, we, we operate with absolute adherence to those. But I think it's much more than that. It's about thinking creatively and, and finding dynamic solutions. Now, my acute spidey sense tells me that Basel III finalization will be the bane of your existence. Can you, macro perspective, can you explain what Basel III finalization is? Yes, I think that Basel III finalization, it's, it's kind of a unique one, but the reason it's in the press recently is because the US has come out with an NPR, which is basically a proposal for finalizing the rules in the US, particularly relevant for the US GSIBs. So that's why you've seen a lot of research and discussion in the market around this. But practically speaking, actually, We've, you know, and this is speaking across the industry, we've been w working in a Basel III environment since 2013, right? So it's what's new here is the finalization. And the, the reality is that the impact will be somewhat nuanced across the street, right? There are some jurisdictional differences, but I think what is the same is that it ultimately will mean that people are even more cognizant and aware of how they're utilizing capital and also how they're consuming other financial resources such as funding and liquidity, so I think that for our functions, it's a very interesting development because, it, again, sort of brings to the forefront the importance of what we're doing. But I think as sort of industry practitioners, I would be careful not to be too broad brush on this particular discussion because what's really new is this NPR in the US. And as I say, that still is in a proposal phase and the finalization will be seen, but it is certainly going to be interesting. Now, moving on to counterparties. Who do you naturally deal with? Is it other agent lenders? Is it beneficial owners? Even brokers? And more importantly, are there regulatory rules that make certain counterparties more attractive from an economic perspective? Yeah, I think we're very fortunate, actually, in, in our desk. And I mentioned at the top, we kind of operate, you know, both working with sort of, you know, clients of our prime financing business and of our institutional business, but also on the, you know, collateral trading side, we face a lot of street counterparties. So, 
one of the things I really enjoy about my role is being able to have a, a real breadth of engagement. And we have a sort of a, a concept of a collateral ecosystem and a financing ecosystem. And as you said, like we're really touching base with all the different players in that system. And to be successful, we all need each other, which is what, what makes it an ecosystem. So that's what makes it really interesting from a role perspective and having those direct conversations. But also, as you said, yeah, in terms of counterparty types, it's actually quite nuanced. And obviously, what I think what you find is that different counterparties will naturally be engaged in different types of activity. So it's really finding those areas of common ground and then working together to find areas where you can really build fruitful relationships. Now, switching gears a little, on the equity side of things, Equilend is invaluable. Without it, securities finance traders would be back in the Stone Age. Clearly, there is less of an appetite in the financing world for benchmarking via the likes of Equilend. Is that changing? Meaning funds and banks, are they becoming more open to exchanging data to help provide a more robust benchmarking platform? Yeah, I think I think you're right. I think probably, you know, as you say, I think in this sort of securities borrowing and lending world, there's probably a little bit more openness already, as you mentioned. But I think, as I mentioned with the ecosystem point, I think the direction of travel, that there has to be more partnership across counterparties and clients, and indeed across what, you know, historically were thought of as, as competitors as well, right? It's very important through forums like Pazla that we're able to come together as an industry. And that's what's so valuable about Pazla is having that forum where we can speak to other people in similar seats and discuss how we can move forward as a group and as a collective. So I think in the funding world, yes, maybe some of the transparency is not where it is in, in the securities borrowing and lending world, but it is certainly moving in the right direction, I think. Now, let me give you some sodium pentothal here because I know you love the taste of truth serum. How does your day-to-day -day trading get impacted by central bank decisions? You know, there's obviously a lot of discussion around the interest rate environment and the curve structures. And I think it's really about thinking strategically around this, right? So I think the next Fed meeting is mid-September. You know, clearly, we'll have thoughts around that, you know, probabilities of rate hikes, et cetera. But actually, more than that, I'd, I'd look back to, you know, 2020, 2021. One of the things I think we did very well was thinking about scenario planning, right? And, and you know, this is something that we led out of this region as we thought, look, what can change here in terms of an abrupt change in the environment? And we look back at, uh, you know, scenarios from history, 1970s, etc. And some of that raised eyebrows at the time. But there's a great quote from MacArthur where he says, you know, plans are useless, but planning is everything. So by virtue of looking at those cycles, it gave us thoughts and, and structures. So when we saw this very profound change of the interest rate curve, we weren't surprised by it, right? We obviously, it was more profound than we'd expected but we had thoughts around it. So central bank decisions, yes, very important. What's going on with the BOJ right now, extremely topical. And, you know, we definitely keep a very close eye on it, but we're also thinking more strategically. We're thinking a little bit longer term and, you know, what might change beyond the next rate decision, also what might change around the corner. How does 2024 look? John, this is my last question, and we'll move it around like a queen on a chessboard. Is there a potential to unlock more capacity in APAC? Yes, I think, I think there is, is the, the broad stroke there. As I mentioned on the, the market structures, because we're growing as a region, right, and you know, it's been a great growth market for UBS and for the broader industry, that means that we're still entering markets and bringing assets to market that then need to be mobilized and funded and optimized. So yes, absolutely, there's more work to do. And there's exciting things happening right across the region. And again, you know, forums like Paz are so important in helping us to build out that footprint. John, that was fantastic. You, my friend, are an anytime guest. Thanks, Matt. Super. Okay, let's remove the fig leaf and pop the hood 
and get some Pazla updates and no better place to go but directly to the source. The current chairman of Pazla, Jason Wells, based here in Hong Kong. Welcome, Jason. Hey, Matt. Steady on, cowboy, though. You've been hosting these podcasts for a year. Thank you on behalf of the association for these efforts that you've put in. They really do make a difference. Also to our sponsors, Equaland and our producer, Paula, who clearly does a very good job to make you sound good. But before we get underway with your 007 style interrogation of me, which I know you love, I think we need to take a moment to get to know Matt MacArthur a little bit better. I did some research about what makes a good podcast host. Aside from this great speaking voice that you have, you apparently need to be able to think on your toes. So please humor me. Let's flip the script for a moment. I have three rapid fire questions for you, Matt. Number one, what food could Matt not live without? Definitely margarita pizza. Number two, what motivated you to take up this role as a podcast host? Pazla voluntold me that I had to do it, which means they volunteered and told me at the same time. I feel quite similar about me on this podcast right now. <laughs> and finally, three, which famous person would you most like to interview? It would definitely have to be JFK. Okay. Well, now I think we've got a better feel for what's under the hood of Matt's MacArthur Corvette. Please fire away and I'm all yours. Now, as the chairman of PASLA, can you highlight some of your short and longer term goals? I mean, short term goals, we'd love to see more markets uh, opening up for international securities lending and borrowing. So international participants that are able to transact under a GMSLA with offshore collateral bilaterally managed or through a tri-party agent. So we're closely engaged with the Philippines and the Indonesian stock exchanges and clearing houses to try to help them through their growing pains as they develop their domestic market retail environments into a more international minded market scene. And then separately, China. China's probably more of a, uh, it would be lovely if it was a short term effort, but it's probably more of a medium to longer term goal. And that's really uh, engaging as Pazla onshore with the ecosystem that presides through the CSFC domestically with the margin financing and securities lending environment, and also Stock Connect uh, with the Hong Kong Exchange and its efforts to collaborate onshore. So we are really setting relatively aggressive targets in terms of engagement, lobbying through multiple different means, and trying to assist as well in terms of the, the, the overall education and development of, those, uh, of that particular market. And then more of a, a medium to, to longer term goal as well is PASA is, as most members know, been operating as a voluntary association to a large degree with its members participating heavily in the day-to-day -day interactions, the engagements, the lobbying efforts. And we feel that we may be able to get better outcomes if we staffed up the association with fully paid staff. And that's really a longer standing engagement that we've been looking at for a couple of years, which manifests itself in the form of a CEO. And the CEO role for PASA has been one that we've been advertising actively and been interviewing for a little over a year. And uh, our hope is that we'll be able to find an appropriate candidate that can lead the association into a new era and bring in better outcomes, more effective use of resources, and hopefully a bigger member base and more recognition for the, the benefits and engagements of securities lending and securities financing within the region. Now, we all know that PASLA is a composite of APAC brokers and agent lenders. So how do individuals add value, especially when so many parties are involved? 
That's a tough one, Matt. Everybody is wedded to their institution. So the institution is omnipresent. Everybody is only as good as their institution is what you're told. But PAS is slightly different, right? It is currently in its current form, really needs that volunteer enthusiasm, engagement, participation. You somewhat take off your work hat, your institution hat, and you dig in and you start working on behalf of the industry. You can see people change. They get a lot more enthused and engaged about the future of their particular interest market, or they're particularly interested in a, a type of regulation or an operational structure that uh, is evolving, um, or maybe it, it's to do with technology and maybe there's a new approach on the horizon with AI or some digital framework to improve efficiency in settlements. You can potentially get out of your comfort zone and be engaged in PASA and learn new things, meet new people, cross organizations, and benefit the association as a whole. So to be present and engaged and make the most of the opportunity that PASA presents is to really put yourself out there in working groups. So we formed a series of working groups about four or five years ago. And those working groups, they morph over time. They adapt into different needs from time to time. So we'll have some standing agenda working groups. We'll have some new ones that come along to solve for a, a current problem or a current topic. And it's really incumbent upon those listening, those who are part of the member organizations to volunteer themselves. And it, there's no necessity to be front office. You can be in operations, product, risk, compliance, BRM groups, the risk management teams. You can be junior, you can be senior. It's really, really helpful to have a diverse engagement and participation group. And the working groups do actually meet regularly. They do produce very useful information that goes out to the, the wider population and they can make meaningful change. So for an individual who's sitting there at their desk or working from home today and they're like, look, I've heard of Pazza, I'm not really sure what to do and how to get involved. Go on the website, you'll see a list of contact points. There's even a list of the working groups. Reach out. We are happy to assess your interest level and try to put you in a, an applicable working group that works for you. The one thing I would ask, if you do want to be on one, please be a participant. There's occasions where we have people that are not uh, active and it just lowers the, the participation for everybody and the interest level. We can't have the same people doing the same thing every time. We need to have a blend of participation. So active participation, working groups, sign up today. And help me out here. What is the best way to find any new information about PASLA regarding market updates or even upcoming PIN events? So the, the website is probably the, the first port of call, so PASLA online. And then the other area would be the LinkedIn channel. So follow the LinkedIn channel. Uh, you can put in comments there if you want to or share posts that are, are put in. It's an open channel. And the pin events and any particular salient events that are occurring in the, the near future will be on there. I would also say speak to your member. So on the Puzzle website, again, all the member firms will have a list of their representative. I encourage you to reach out to them, speak to them about your participation, your interest level, and they should be empowered and engaged enough to be able to get you some involvement onto the PASA working groups, et cetera. But also login details. So this is one common area I think that people get stopped at quite quickly on the PASA website is that there's only a certain amount of information that's openly available to everybody. But if you are a, from a member firm, you are entitled to login details. So again, please reach out to PASA 
through the, the email addresses on the website, we will furnish you with those login details so you can enjoy and engage with the overall material that's there. So again, look out for this podcast. That's another great place. And when the next pin event rolls around, please, if you're a regular, encourage and bring colleagues, your partners in the organization, people that are interested, whether it, again, it's operations, it's risk, it's compliance, it's legal, uh, COO group, anybody that touches the securities financing world that can offer a different point of view and perspective, they're more than welcome. It's, it's all about inclusion. It's all about diversity of thought. And it certainly helps having them, them come along. Well, thank you very much, Jason. We do appreciate your time and as the hardest working chairman that Pazla has ever seen. We all wish you good luck with your upcoming chairmanship. Thanks again. Thanks, Matt. Now it's time for my favorite part of these podcasts. We sit down with the future stars of the industry. We call it five and five, five questions in five minutes. And we only have one very simple rule. We're here for a good time, not a long time. So without further ado, we have with us today, Nguyen Tran from Morgan Stanley, Sydney, Australia. G'day, mate. How you going? Hey, Matt. I totally nailed that, didn't I? <laughs> you did. That's, that's, what, that's exactly how we talk around here. <laughs> Love it. All right, let's start the clock ticking. So living in Asia has turned me into an avid traveler, and I can't think of a city that's changed my life more than Sydney. I mean, besides Wuhan. Sydney's beaches are fantastic. Climbing the Harbour Bridge, the Opera House is stunning. What do you like about Sydney? Well, Matt, I've lived here my whole life. Uh, but to me, Sydney is probably the perfect mix of nature and lifestyle. You know, you only have to travel a short amount of time to escape the hustle and bustle of the city, uh, to either the quaint countryside or, you know, a few hours to the other side and you get to, you know, the picturesque coastlines. Um, and, you know, in the city, there's so much diversity and, you know, I think we're sport for choice in terms of food, culture, you know, events, etc. Um, there's not too much more I can ask for, really. Uh, and let's not forget the weather. You know, it's it's, it's currently... Uh, winter here is 20 degrees Celsius and it's sunny days, so I can't complain too much about that. Or complain at all. Holy smokes, I'm jealous. Okay, let's water this plant. Talk to me about your securities finance development, say from your f first few weeks on the job till today. I remember when I first started in uh, securities finance, you know, stock loan, I was trying to get my whole head around you know, the whole concept uh, of this industry. Uh, it's all very new to me, all, all very foreign. You know, now having worked in a number of roles across middle office, client coverage, uh, front office across both agent lending and prime brokerage, you know, I feel like I've progressed my knowledge and expertise. Uh, I guess to a point where I can use this to provide the best possible service and results to you know the firm uh, as well as our, our clients. You know, it's an industry that continues to not only challenge us but also encourage us to keep learning, keep developing, keep adapting. Now that leads me right into my next question. As far as work advice goes, mine is simple. If you think the price of hard work is high, you just wait until you see the bill for regret. Admittedly, sometimes I do forget this podcast isn't all about me. Do you have any work advice for the new joiners of our industry? Yeah, definitely. Uh, one that stuck with me and I guess sounds a bit cliche potentially, uh, but I've always been told to ask questions and you know be curious. You know, this is something that you know I've I've kind of lived by you know, through my whole career in finance so far. Uh, sometimes you know it can be easy to become ingrained in a certain way of doing things. You know, a fresh pair of eyes is an opportunity to ask why, uh, and really opens up the potential for innovation and change. You know, there, there may not always be a better way, uh, but it's always worth asking you know that question. Now, tell the audience, in your opinion. What's the hardest part of our jobs? 
I say the hardest part of the job uh, is also the most rewarding. Um, you know, we have to be consistently across all aspects of the market we cover, you know, from relevant and time sensitive news to corporate events to supply and demand of, of the borrower. You know, all these are important considerations and we really need to understand how these do and can impact our you know, underlying clients. Now, this is what I believe, you know, having such a collaborative team, uh, you know, that share a common goal at Morgan Stanley really makes all the difference. And, you know, the, the whole is greater than, than the sum of its parts. Yeah, I certainly try to relay the urgency as much as I possibly can. I think that's differentiator for me. Okay, so time is running out, so let's spend it like it's gold. I presume you did not hit the Mega Millions lottery last night, or you probably wouldn't be talking to me right now. But if you had won a billion dollars, what would you do with it? So I'm a big, big football fan. Uh, I love my football. You know, I've always been a supporter of, of Liverpool SC. You know, if I had that money, I would be at every game. You know, hopefully see them win the Premier League. Um, t- you know, hopefully without waiting another 30 years. And you know, depending on how the team goes, you know, I might even buy a stake in the club and you know try my hand at being a manager. Uh, but yeah, you know, we'll see what happens. Congratulations, Nguyen. You are the first guest to ever listen to me and come under five minutes. <laughs> and it was a pleasure to have you. And mate, I will see you roared around the perimeter. Thanks again. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Our only ask to the listener is, you are our lifeline. Market feedback of any kind helps. Comments, suggestions on future topics, inquiries, they're all welcomed. Please reach us at podcast at pazlaonline.com. I'm Matt MacArthur, and thanks for joining us. We'll see you on the next edition of Asia Securities Finance Monthly. This podcast was sponsored by Equilend, a global fintech firm for the securities finance industry.